Hey, this is Big Lou. And when I'm on the internet, I'm listening to Jack Dabba Blues. I'm Dietrichar, listening to Jack Dabba Blues. Everybody, this is Adam Gusso. Hi, I'm Veronica Jackson, America's acoustic folk blues singer. You're listening to Jack Dapper Blues. Hello, this is Ray Brooks. You're listening to Jack Dapper Blues. Hi, this is Guy Davis. Hey there, folks, this is Don Flynn of the American Songster, slapping the dap with Jack Dapper Blues. Hey everybody, this is Walter Trout, and you are listening to Jack Dapper Blues. Hey, this is Shamika Copeland. Hey, I'm Ben Turner of Piedmont Blues. I'm here with Valerie Turner. And we are bluesing with Lamont Jack Parley, the best radio station for true blues. Hi, I'm Larry Griffin, and I keep it locked and loaded on Jack Dapper Blues. Yes, yes, yes. What's happening, what's happening, what's happening, blues people? Another great show, and you know I love interviewing great people of the blues people. Blues people meaning culturally, but also meaning those who have contributed to the cultural expression. And I have a very special guest who does not want me to call her Mrs. Jackson, so I'm going to do my best not to. (laughs) But let's welcome... Chase Jackson, some of you know this woman for for being the fiery blues promoter as she is, but we're going to get into her story and let her tell it. How are you, Chase? I'm doing great, thank you, in this beautiful sunny day down here in Cape May, New Jersey. So it's not snowing out there? No snow at all. Wow. You're just so close to New York, I would imagine... Well, we're like, they say we're in a bubble because I'm really literally between the Bay Shore, Delaware Bay, and the Atlantic Ocean. It kind of like cuts right off. It goes above us. It always cuts off above us. Seems to, anyway. It catches us sometimes. Well, look, I'm happy you're enjoying the day. I'm happy it's sunny. (laughs) But so, this, you know, we spoke off air, and there were so many wonderful stories that you shared with me. Um, before we get into the stories, let's get into your journey and and how the blues community knows you because you've done some phenomenal, not just for the blues, but for you know black uh, culture as a whole. You've done some great works. So, do, do you want to start how you how you got into? Uh, uh, raising blues awareness and then going to everything else? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, because if I go chronologically in my age, we'll be here all day. <laughs> oh, stop that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So if I want to start with the, I'll start with the blues and really how I got into that because I was already already immersed into the culture of African-American culture and, and the arts in general already because uh, I'd already been doing theater in the community as the community person. But to get into the blues, I was I was uh, one Black History, apropos, one Black History pro- Month, I was uh, taking my kids to a program at the Chrysler Museum in Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, now remember, this is a, a Caucasian-run 
a museum. Right. But it was a wonderful museum, wonderful museum. And they were nice enough to have a Black History Month program. So I took my kids there. But what did they have for performing that day? An R&B band. Oh. Yes, that was a, yeah, it was an R&B band. Uh, now, when you when I look at Black culture today, yes, it, it is part of our history, R&B. But in those days, it was a popular music uh, a band because my kids are in their 50s. So to me, that wasn't what I was expecting. I was thinking I was going to get some historical stuff for Black History Month, but they were right. just putting on a show for us. But anyway, no offense, people out there. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I took my kids there and the band was really excellent and it was a show band. So they had the little costumes and the little all this, you know, like the temptation kind of stuff. But I honed in on a guy that was playing the drums and he actually played, um, he's got up for, from the drums at one point and sang um, uh, a cappella. Um, oh gosh. Oh, it, it wasn't even a blues tune. It was uh, Everything Must Change. Mm. And at the change, he went back at a, at a point in the song, he went back to the drums and then they brought up the music. And that just impressed me so. And that wasn't blues or nothing now, okay? But anyway, I honed in on him and sent word back to the band <laughs> afterwards. I want to talk to the dude that was on the drums. So anyway, we started dating and I was going over to his house. And every time I would go over to his house, he'd have he'd be playing blues. I didn't know that's what it was at the time. I mean, because the only thing I knew about blues was B.B. King and Bobby Blue Bland. Right. And he had <laughs> all these albums on the floor, these ugly men. To me, they were ugly men. <laughs> Led Better, Jolly Hooker. I'm sorry, but that's what I felt back in the day. Oh, all over the floor. I mean, because this was in the early 70s. And I was saying, why are you listening to this sad music? You feel okay? You all right? I'm, you know, I'm feeling like I'm supposed to be helping you cheer you up, baby. You oh, know, but anyway, he, <laughs> so he turned, he ended up turning me on to the blues because he said that's his preference. He would rather be playing blues than R&B or anything else he was playing. So, hmm. I, so after dating him for a while and I was already, like I said, in the arts, I said, well, why are you playing with the R&B band? Why don't you form your own blues band? Right. And so I had the uh, uh, the opportunity to give him a place to woodshed. And with that, he developed, he created his own blues band while he was still playing with the other group. He created his own blues band. Nobody was playing blues around in town. If they were, they were in their garages, just like he was woodshedding. Uh, and there was one jazz club that had a blues night and the closest thing to blues then and a good mu musician, another brother, but he was a jazz musician. He was a, he was a, a woodwind instrument. He played sax and, and flute and all that clarinet but he was playing like uh stormy monday you know mm. so he was playing jazz on the blues cusp okay right, or blues right. yeah blues on the jazz well, hold cusp. On. Can, can anyway. i interrupt for a yes. second to ask you a question oh by all means because i'll talk because about. you know you said something that ironically enough i was having a conversation about this yesterday i cannot remember the name of the movie but it was a documentary about the uh motown house band and from what they said, what the musician said, it was a black musician. He said that it was like, you know, a day job. We would go to the studio. We would spend eight to 12 hour shifts playing uh, studio and radio music. And then at night we would go to the bar and play some blues. Now, you just made a, a clear distinction that, you know, uh, the gentleman you were dating w w rather played blues. But was playing something else professionally blues on its own time. And we hear this a lot. Is there any, do you have any um, um, thoughts or experience or memories of why it was like separated like that at this time? 
Oh, yeah. Nobody was playing it on the radio. So nobody was going out to, to listen to them. You know, there was no place to go play in them. No clubs were hiring any blues bands and there were, it wasn't heard on the radio. So there weren't people, at least we didn't know there were people that would be interested in participating as an audience to even listen to the music. Now, that changed in Norfolk because of what I'm going into now. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That changed. And, and that's what it's going to take. It's going to take the blues musicians who are still playing in their garage band, you know, in their garages or whatever, to just kind of like or organizations to start hiring these bands. Um, but anyway, so he would shed it. And uh, again, I was still out there in the community doing my art stuff. And at this time in 1976 was, uh, no, 1980, 1980, because that was something else in 76. In 1980, I uh, had an opportunity to hire some bands to play at a celebration for a, 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 a big convention center to open. And so I had what was called a cultural room because they always put me, you know, I could come up with all the cultural stuff. Anyway, so I said, baby, let's shoot for you to have your band together to premiere at that culture, in my cultural room. And sure enough, uh, he pulled his band together and uh, we would shed it enough. And he opened in this room that I had in this building. And uh, people flocked to the room. My little room was small compared to the main stages and stuff. But it, it, we had a good, uh, I never forget his mother. And by the way, his name is Ernie Williams. I'll give him credit. Uh, Ernie Williams. Uh, and the name of the band was the Gut Bucket Blues Band. Yes, mm. we did call it that. The Gut Bucket, gut bucket and he was, Blues. And he was Sweet Papa Guts. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway. So um, he played played the drums and he sang. Okay. He was a blues belter. Dynamite um, a guitarist whose name is Lathan Pudgy Hill. His nickname was always Pudgy Hill. And Pudgy is still playing to this day. He plays a mean guitar and a wonderful balladeer. Beautiful, beautiful balladeer. Anyway. Um, anyway, so they played and because of that um, and because of all the things that I was doing, uh, there was an opportunity, more opportunity for us because festivals were pretty big back then, really getting bigger and bigger. And Rouse, do you know who Rouse is? Uh, Rouse is a developer who developed um, the South Street Seaport right. and the big uh, center in Boston and in Baltimore Harbor. So because of uh, something that was going on in Norfolk and we're right on the water as well. That's my hometown, by the way. I'm originally from Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and uh, Rouse came to Norfolk because when, I'm, I'm backtracking a minute to bring it all forward. Uh, in, seven, in 1976, during the bicentennial, the tall ships uh, uh, sailed all across America in celebration of this bicentennial. And so right. they came to Norfolk, but we didn't have a park or anything. It was just just an ugly waterfront that was all messed up. Well, Rouse, because we drew so many people there, and I was involved in that too, because I was doing a fest, uh, a, a, a stage, but he wasn't, my, un, my old man wasn't around at the time. I uh, hadn't hooked up yet. <laughs> uh, anyway, we may have, but we're not the band yet. Anyway, so um, I uh, was in on the ground floor of doing festivals at this park that was going to be developed. And so I said, we need to do, a, I can pull off a, a blues festival. You know, now fast forwarding. If you build this park, I got you a blues festival. Mm. Now I know where I was gonna get the rest of the bands from, but I knew I knew one <laughs> band. Okay. So so I said to my told my old man, I said, look, you know, okay, I got this opportunity because we can do a blues festival because I was already doing the Harbor Fest. It was a huge festival I was already doing, and again arts festival I was already doing. So I said, why not do another festival? So blues festival, we're gonna need some help. So of course, we started thinking about other musicians who were woodshedding 
and uh, or playing in their garages, blues, mostly uh, white guys uh, and a couple of black girls and a couple of one, one or two, only one black guy that I know of. Anyway, so uh, we got with them and uh, I had already done all the paperwork for the 501c3 and found a grant to apply to and everything. It was already ready. I was already ready. Call the meeting. And so we found, formed the Natural Blues Network, which is a mm. blues society. And uh, and so my old man and I, we consider ourselves the, the initiating founders, but then we brought in other people to be on the founding board, okay? Got grants, did our first uh, festival when the park opened called the Elizabeth River Blues Festival. And now I'm going into, uh, and by that time, by that time, there were like about five bands because this had taken a couple of years to develop, okay? Right, right. Because I'm a planner. I don't do something like, I'm not trying to do it overnight. You know, right, right, I'm right, not right. like that. Okay. <laughs> so, and the festival park, the festival park had to be built, you know. So by that time, there are five blues bands in the area and they were already performing. We had clubs that would, we were kind of forcing clubs to hire us because there was so many bands looking for groups, looking for work. And there were a couple of clubs who get, really gave us the time of day, so to speak, you know. They gave right. So we started a good following. So when the festival happened, we drew probably about 60,000 people that first festival. But of wow. course, I had the headliners. I had John Lee Hooker. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I had, yeah, I had Big Joe Turner. And that was, I want to say that was in 82, 80, 81, 82. I can't even remember. Sure. Anyway, uh, you know, it was, it was the same year John Lee, that Big Joe Turner died because he was scheduled with Room Full of Blues. Mm. And then uh, that week before uh, the festival, we got word that Joe was hospitalized. Oh, man. And he died like, he died like some weeks after that. So, but I still kept Room Full of Blues on the bill right, since I already right. had them booked for him. I just kept them. Uh, but but I had Johnny Hooker, Room Full of Blues. And um, I can't I can't even remember. I'd have, I didn't look back to see all the names, but that, John Lee was the, the killer deal, of course. Of and course. I had to have John Lee because that was one of the ugly faces I saw in my old man's pile of LPs. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, that's how I felt back in the way back in the day. By that time, I appreciated everything, you know, by the time the festival came around. I was in love with the blues, okay? Anyway, so um, we, uh, we've we had blues festivals. So I get it, I'm gonna tell the story about John Lee, okay? Okay. Okay. Right. Go, go ahead. Now, I have to tell you that his daughter, who I'm friends with, she's going to see this. But go ahead. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. This was so funny. This is hilarious. Okay. Uh, okay. So John Lee's. Whenever anybody came to my festivals, and I had, like I said, I had several festivals I was doing, and always got Ford Motor, the Ford Motor uh, Company, not just the local dealers, through the dealers, of course, but the Ford Motor Company sponsored a lot of stuff we did. So I got them to, and by the way. This is all done as a for free by me. I was always a volunteer. This is nothing that was done, and I was never paid for any of the work I ever did at any festivals I've ever done ever. Wow. Yeah, right. I did That's it all. Love. It's a That's labor good. of love, labor of love, labor of love. Okay. Uh, anyway, so um, I uh, always contacted Ford Ford Motor, and they always lent us uh, Winnebago's those big RVs and you could, they were brand new. We always got them brand new because it was always warm and hot when we did the festivals. So we had to have air conditioning and stuff for our, because our, there were no dressing rooms at the festival site, it's outdoors. Beautiful on the waterfront in Norfolk, downtown Norfolk. So um, we never could use the toilets in the, the, the toilets inside the Winnebago's. So we always had a special uh, um, porta john right by the stage that the key was turned over. The only person that could use it would be 
the musician. So we turned the key over to the road manager so that he was that he or she was in charge of that, knowing that no volunteer could go in there, nobody else could use it but you guys. Okay. So we impressed upon them they cannot use the bathrooms on the Winnebago. Right. So it was taped up, signed on it, everything. You could use the you could use the mirrors in there, but there's no running water in there at all. So just know that. Okay. Well, <laughs> John Lee used the bathroom. For a number two. Uh-oh. I'll say that pol- say that politely. Now, now there's no water in it. So I don't know. You people hope you got good stomachs here as I'm talking. Anyway, there's no water in it. Well, I, of course I don't know that until they're gone. And you know, we and the and the state my stage manager goes in there or one of the helpers goes in just to check the place to get ready for the next act to come in. And somebody comes out saying, John, they done crapped in the <laughs> in the toilet. <laughs> and so you don't know this, but I had Plenty of volunteers who had come in and clean up John Lee's shit. Okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they were anxious to clean up John Lee Hooker's, the booger man's boo-boos. Okay. So I had no problem getting it cleaned up. <laughs> and I'm gonna fast so forward. Were these all um, white young young? Yes, folk? they were. Yes, they were all of them. Yes, yes, yes. Right. There were that many, not that many blacks involved in, in the blues society. It was basically me, my old man. Uh Two guitar, one guitar player, bass player, um, and the band, and my band, the band members from my old man's band. Yeah. Wait, that's anyway. The, wait, hold. Wait, I, I'll stop you because I, I was going to make a, a one point, but we, this leads to another point. You said okay. So at this time, even then, these blue societies did not have black members. Nope. Oh. I would say that, and I can even tell you, I. I I don't remember names well, but I can tell you almost every name of anybody who was in that blue society who was black. Wow. And it probably would be on two hands. Okay. And that's most, and most of them were musicians. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So not, not even people who love the blues, you know, uh, not, not audience members, but, but musicians. Yeah. No, so at not this really. time, the audience was, was, was predominantly white. Non, predominantly white. Black Correct. people had moved Correct. on. Correct. Correct. Oh, blacks have moved up. We tend to do that with our culture. We tend to, you know, once, and that's another whole subject I'd love to talk to you about. Um, um, anyway, but um, we tend to do our thing, do it well. When they catch on to it, they, meaning whites, catch on to it and take it. Uh, then we say, okay, you can, okay, you go ahead, you go ahead, we're going to go over here and do this. You know, we, we do this now. OK. All right. You go right ahead. You know, anyway. So but that's OK, because we still like I tell anybody who founds an organization, you still the mom and the dad of that organization. You still a mom and dad. You still a founder and originator of that, whatever that was. Right. So the music is still ours. Right. You know, we'll always be ours. You know, we can we can take it back, you know, whatever, whatever. Take it over or, you know, go back to it and do it up again and still kick it. You know, anyway. Uh, no offense, white people. Okay, uh, <laughs> um, we're still glad you love it. Uh, anyway, so I want to fast forward with about John Lee's story. <laughs> uh, when the organization, that, oh, because it was an organization called the Natural Blues Network. That was okay. the name of the organization we founded. Uh, we call it NBN. When we had, when they had, because by that time I'd moved on and was living in Jersey, they had their 25th anniversary, and invited me and my old man back. We were busted up by then. Uh, um, anyway, so we went back um, <laughs> for it, and um, when we were up on stage, I, you know, gave my little little talk, 
And I said, I want to, I said, I want to, I'm sure there's somebody in this audience that has some free dries John Lee Hooker crap in your freezer right now. I'm sure oh somebody got goodness. some in there. Yeah, because I'm sure they saved it. I'm sure they saved it. Somebody's got it stuck in the back of a freezer somewhere. I just know. Oh, I just know how, oh. how they, I know how folks are. You know, it's, it's famous man's poop. You know, I, <laughs> I had to make that joke because I said, and people remembered it. Some people remembered it. I don't know who got it. I can't remember who took it. But I bet you somebody still got that in their refrigerator, in their freezer. Oh, my goodness. Stuck up. They won't even know what it is when they open it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing. <laughs> You know, it, it's, it's, it's crazy just based on how the how, how the story and the history of our relate uh, our respective relationships have been throughout the last hundred years is it, it, per- perpetuated that the a white person would spit on a black person if they was on fire. But if you are, it, it kind of reminds me of um, do the right thing. The scene when uh, Mookie was asking the 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 son of the pizza owner. Do you like Michael Jackson? Do you like, you know, Magic Johnson? So why do you have problems with black people if you like, you know, these two yeah. people because they're black? It was just ironic, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's okay. Well, I want to point out, I want to throw out too, because I've thought about this today as I was trying to recap what I wanted to, you know, share. Um, do you know who Nat Riddles was? Who's Nat Riddles? Share with us. He's a heart heart player. He was a heart player. He he was in New York for a long time, and he played at Dan Lynch's a lot. Mm. You know Dan Lynch down mm-hmm. in uh, not in, you know that where that was. Yes, yes, was but tell the audience. Oh 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 oh! Well, I need help. I don't know where Dan Lynch. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'm not a New Yorker, so I know that Dan Lynch was close to the village. I know it wasn't in the village, but Dan Lynch is the blues was the blues club in New York in in lower I guess lower Manhattan. Right. And uh, there was this harmonica player named uh, Nat Riddles. Nat was oh well respected in the in the community. He was young. He was young because um, but anyway he and I my old man's band the blue the uh, when we we played it he played it Dan Lynch's um, the Gut Bucket Blues Band played at Dan Lynch's one time only. I got him a gig because I was working when we were doing the Natural Blues Network. It was really me doing all the work, <laughs> which was okay because I was I was up for it. I was getting a lot of calls from uh, other organizations or other people who wanted to start Blue Society. So the New York Blue Society contacted me. So if you're out there, guys, hi, I hope you're still kicking it. Um, <laughs> the New York Blue Society had not formed or had not, had not formalized their, their organization and contacted me for help. And I, I worked with them. And that's how I found out about Dan Lynch's. And I got invited. We got, the band got invited to Dan Lynch's because they didn't know us from Adam. I didn't know Dan Lynch's. But anyway, so we, we went. When we went, our, my old man's band was comprised. It was four pieces, uh, guitar, uh, drums, uh, bass, and harp. But it was a, a, a white guy on the harp who was a radiologist. Mm. His name was Doc because we called him Doc. Okay. And um, because we couldn't find a, a black harpist in Virginia, we found the ones we found were not reliable. And I told him, oh man, you need somebody reliable. I don't care. You know, I'm right. sorry. He could be fa- fabulous as he wanted to be, but you need reliable. You got to be reliable. Okay? That's right. Right, right. So we went with Doc. And uh, what Doc might not have had, he had the heart. He might not have had the skills as, as we would want it, but he still was good enough for what we were trying to start out. Right. But when we got to Dan Lynch's and ran into uh, Nat Riddles, Nat was off the chain. 
awesome. I mean, anybody on in here who probably who, who sees your uh, podcast will know if they've heard of him, they'll know how cool he is. And you can look him up when he's got you just YouTube on him. Uh, Nat moved to Virginia, and when he did, we of course we got him in our got him in the band. So it was the first time, and I was so happy to have an all black blues band. Oh my god, oh my god, you just don't know how I felt down there in Virginia to be able to do that. I do. <laughs> like I like I look like. Look, I'm acting like I did it, but I mean my old man's band. <laughs> Ernie's band. I shouldn't say my old man's band. Ernie's band. Ernie's band was like the first black blues band, all black blues band in Virginia. Uh, Nats, uh, unfortunately, uh, um, became ill. He was going back and forth trying to go to New York and visit people and everything, but he lived in Richmond. Uh, he settled in Richmond for a while, and he ended up dying of leukemia. And I saw him about, I guess, about two months before he died and, and, and realized how sick he really was. He was, his car broke down on a turnpike and I was living in, Jer- in Jersey and I went and picked him up and, and got him back to my house and stayed a couple of nights until we got him on the bus to back to Richmond. And then he, uh, this Blue Society's made a lot of fundraisers for him. Dan Lynch did too, to help him raise money for his hospitalization. But anyway, good, that's good. another whole story. Yeah, yeah that was, well, yeah. No, well, it is another whole story because you, you know it's hard for um, elder black artists to get the proper care right now from a lot of these organizations yeah. that claim that's what they're doing, but I, I don't want to get oh, to yeah, 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 Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I got to jump now to because somebody else that you, you, I'm sure you know who may also listen to this podcast is Shamika Copeland. Um, yes. Yeah, okay. Hi, Shamika. I never met you. On this platform, yes. Okay, I never met Shamika, but her dad, uh, I hired her dad when I was still living in Norfolk. I hired her dad to come to Norfolk and play. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, he ended up not only playing, but he played during one of our uh, Blue Society's um, Battle of the Bands to see who was going to win that battle to go down to Memphis oh, to, wow. the, uh, blue, to the Blues, chant, you know, the Blues com- Amateur Blues Competition. No, yeah, yeah, right. And I took, I've taken two bands down there. Anyway, oh, wow. um, through the, through, right. And so her dad was on our panel because I had him in concert the same night. He was like the headliner for that, for that competition. But he wasn't in the competition, obviously. He wasn't right, in the competition, right, right. but he was the closing. He was the closing act of the competition, for our competition. And then he sat on the uh, panel to decide who, help us decide who was going to go. Then fast forward on that one, when he got sick, when Johnny got sick, I was already living in North, um, up in New Jersey by then. But our Blue Society, I will say, uh, raised some money, had fundraisers to help him uh, in, when he was ill. And they actually won uh, the, um, the Blue Society Award that year for doing that. Oh, wow. So that's, yeah, from the, um, what's it called? The Blues Foundation? Yeah, the Blues yes. Foundation. Yes. It called? Yeah, from the Blues Foundation. They won the Blues Foundation Award as, a, as the best uh, Blue Society that year. I wasn't with them then because I'm a founder who knows how to move on. Because I moved out of the area, <laughs> but I was very proud of them for uh, keeping it keeping it going. And yeah, yeah. So I was really proud of them. So I felt good about that. Um, well, tell me something. So yeah. you you you're kind of going through this, and I don't know if you, I think you do know, but you're being extremely humble because you you was very instrumental in the very first, uh, if I'm not mistaken, blues festival of this region of, of Norfolk. And then you, and, and your, your, your significant was the first all black blues band at this time. You know, you, 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 you guys are making history, you know, how did it feel? And this is the early eighties, late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. 
early, early 80s. By that time, it's early 80s, yeah. Okay. How, how does it feel with, and you, you, you mentioned that black people move on and stuff, but, but outside of, you know, that, the, the, the tongue-in-cheek joke, how did it feel when you, you, you guys realize this black traditional music and we are the first and only all black band of a black traditional music in this region at this time? How, what, did, did that thought process come up at all? Did you guys talk about this? Well, it started from when he was pulling it together. When he started auditioning musicians way mm-hmm. before Nat came on, he wanted it to be an all-black blues band. That was his goal. Mm. He was adamant about that. And it was only until we couldn't find a heart player. And he wanted a heart player really bad. But it was only when we couldn't find a heart player, a black heart player that was reliable when he ended up and, and I kind of pushed him on it because, of course, I was already, like I said, in the industry of being able to get gigs for them. Right. I knew that that would also help him get gigs, unfortunately, you know, because right. you could, you know, you know, quiet as it's kept, it was easy to go in there with a white guy. Right. You know, not that the white guy ever spoke for, he never spoke for, the white guy never spoke for us, but by that time, I had a lot of credibility because I was already doing a lot of stuff out there in the community. Right. Uh, so, um, but um, he always wanted, and it was because of that. It was because, it was always because you only saw like lots of white guys, you know, white, well, not girls, but even white women too were playing and singing. Um, but he didn't want it to be anywhere near. He, I'm, and I'm speaking for him. And, and Ernie, if he ever sees sees this, I don't, I'm not I'm not trying to speak for you, but this is how I feel that he felt, and kind of how I feel that to 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 us, it is authentic when it's done by us. Right. And the feeling, and the, and it was more authentic. And he didn't want it to to come off anywhere near being rock and roll or rockabilly or, you know, because the guitar, you know, just wanted to be more pure, you know. He wanted to be able to go, and I do know this, he he liked the idea of being able to do like that back porch style like Gary Gary Wright does, right. right on up to the to the electric, you know, right on up to the electric. So whether it was acoustic or electric, he could do it all. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, because, uh, you know, so that, you know, he played the spoons and the whole thing, you know, so oh, wow. it was... I got him his spoons. I got him his first real spoons that you know that are made for playing the spoons. He was right. playing them with regular tablespoons at first, but I got him his real spoons. Yeah. So it was really cool. I think, I think um to me, when I was in first started out in the arts, um, as um even as a professional in the arts, I, I'm gonna get full now. I'm an old lady getting full. I always felt like I was supposed to be behind and the support and of the artist. And I still do that to this day. I mean, I mean, they need to be paid and it's not just being paid for those two hours or three hours for the sets. They need to be paid for the time they were in woodshedding, learning, researching and all that stuff. You need to be paid. Uh, And so I always felt that it was always better for a band or even a visual artist or whomever to not go out there trying to, um, promote themselves, even though when you're out there playing, you're promoting yourself, but, and, and you can promote yourself, but you need to have somebody who's not as connected to you, the performer, to be out there pushing for you, because in that way, it's not like, you know, they really got you back. I really got right. you back. When you got me, you got, when you got me, you, I got you. I got you. You know, I'm a push. 
I'm gonna push and get you out there. So I always felt like I was I was supposed to be. That was my calling. My calling was not necessarily to be a practicing artist, even though I do sing a song every now and then. Um, but I also believe I'm supposed to be here to support and uh, promote the artist and the, and the art art form. Well, you know, I'm happy. That's a perfect segue. We'll jump around a bit. Uh, do you want to talk about your character? That that and, and oh, the Yes. Well, before I move to that one, I want to I'm going to, I'm going to tie up a little a little bow on the blues. Okay. Okay, please. Um, because of um that fe- that first festival that we did, the Elizabeth River Blues Festival, when I couldn't get um um Big Joe Turner, I wanted to have another art another group, and I had already hired all the five bands that were in Norfolk. <laughs> and I had hired bands that were in Richmond, you know, gone, you know, everywhere that I could find a blues band, I hired them for that weekend. But then there were, when I had a little hole in the schedule, I said, I got to find one more band. And somebody told me about this group called Sapphire, the Uppity Blues Women. <laughs> yes. Based out, yeah, based out of Fredericksburg, Virginia. And uh, there were three women, one, one, one white, one uh Cherokee Indian and then uh, African American, and, and that was Gay Adeg Balola, who is still performing to this day, um, and she's still in Fredericksburg. She has a podcast, a blog. A blo- I don't guess you don't call it a podcast. She has a blog that she does uh, on 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 Facebook. So you need to check her out. And Definitely. She, well, anyway, yeah. Uh, so it's Gay Adeg Balola. If I need to spell it, I will. Should I spell it? Uh, we'll, we'll we'll put it okay. in the description. All right. Okay. All right. Anyway, so um, uh, I, I hooked up with them on, on call them up. They were available and they were going to open for John Lee. So they were excited as all get out. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and because of that friendship developed that day, because of hiring them for that, uh, they had already self-produced an album and they were shopping it around. And it ended up that it got in the hands of Bruce Iglar in Alligator. And uh, when they got to Alligator, the alligator liked them enough, but he told them they needed a manager. And by that time, I had already moved to New Jersey and they contacted me because they already had a booking agent. They'd already had a booking agent, right. but they needed a manager because there's a difference, folks. If you don't, those who don't know, there is a difference. Uh, <laughs> and it should be. Anyway, right. so they, they contacted me to ask me if I would be interested uh, in being their manager. So I was their first manager. And for that first contract with the alligator, three record deal they had with alligator. And uh, it was really exciting times. And I really, really in, enjoyed being their manager, even though uh, I was an amateur manager. And plus, I had a nine to five and was doing my own stuff on the side. Uh, <laughs> so when it was time for them to want to go bigger and better, I had no problem uh, letting them find a manager who was more into the uh, industry than I was at that time. Right. So uh, they moved on from me. But we still stayed friends. Um, <clears throat> I, I went through a lot, a lot of uh, things with them that um, were interesting as well. So it's really, really cool. Really cool. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this, because you also know my brother, Gary Wright, who's yep. a, a rootsman, the rootsman. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so when you went to Jersey, did you um, pick up where you left off in the blues space? No, as as well, as a matter of fact, when I went to Jersey, I went to Jersey to work for the Monmouth County Arts Council, which owned and operated at that time the County Basic Theater. Okay. And I went there as the community arts uh, director, which was the person who was working with all the community arts organizations and getting the arts out into the community as best I could. Well, because of that, 
Jersey Shore Jazz and Blues Foundation, which was founded by some people, but it was definitely the leader of that group was the guy who is now with Grammy Museum. Mm. Uh, oh, he used to write for Asbury Park Press. He taught at Monmouth University. And why can't I think of his name? Anyway, we'll find his name. But anyway, right. uh, and, and I know I can see him and everything, but can't think of his name right now. Anyway, but he had founded that organization and I ended up on their board. And it was a Jersey, Jersey, Jersey Shore Jazz and Blues Foundation. And they were having a jazz, a jazz fest, a, a, a festival, jazz and blues festival, that was a club hopping kind of thing, just like they used to they do down here in Cape May. So right. it was a club hop. You went around from club, club to club with the, with the music. And so one year, because, and I met, I think I met Gary through that. He was evidently playing somewhere. I'm pretty sure I met him through that or going out to clubs or whatever, because there was lots of music clubs in on the Jersey Shore back then. Uh, and uh, Jason's uh, Jazz and Blues Club in Belmar was like a place that I went to the second night I got to, uh, got to, to Red Bank area. Okay. Cause that's Red <laughs> Bank area. Yeah. I right. live in Atlantic Collins, but I, the second night I was in town, I went to Jason's Jazz and Blues Club in Belmar anyway, and met Mel Hood. Great guy. I think mm. he's just passed a couple of years ago, I think. Anyway. Um, but anyway, so when I met Gary and by that time I was already, I would sing every now and then when I felt like it with my old man, he had, that's where the first Miss Mamie came into being, by the way. I didn't tell that story. But anyway. Um, so you, you, you got to um, tell the story about your singing. I would go back to that. I would go back to that. Yeah, I would okay. go back to that. Anyway, so, okay. So uh, I always said I want, if, if I wanted to, I want to start a little band. And I wanted to call it Miss Mamie and the White Blue and the White Brothers Blues Band. But it was going to be, I was going to introduce them. And I didn't care what their last names were going to be. It would be. Gary White, Joe White, Peter White, you know, just <laughs> wasn't that they were white, you know, <laughs> Caucasian, but just that's what their names were. <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. Because Miss Maybe and but it ended up, I ended up finding Gary. And so I said, well, and, and I wanted to be on the next a blues festival, jazz and blues festival they were going to have the next year. This mm. had to be my second year in, in uh, Red Bank area. And so Gary and I, we played, we got together, had his band, and we started singing. I'm no singer. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not a singer. Can't hold a key to save my life, but I'm a seller of a song. Okay. <laughs> That's what I do. I sell the song. So Gary and I formed this band and we call it uh, Miss Mamie and the Wright Blues Band mm. because his last name was, was Gary Wright, but I right. we made a small W and a capital R. So it was Miss Mamie with the, and the Wright Blues Band. Okay. I like that, yes. Yeah, you know, came up with that, you know, that, that's my calling anyway, promoting stuff like that. Anyway, so we did a gig, we did a, we did a, a gig for the blues uh, festival, the Jazz and Blues Festival the next year. But that's how I met Gary. And so Gary even helped me with Sapphire being like kind of a roadie for Sapphire when they came to Jersey sometimes. So it was really kind of cool. So he's a good brother, good brother. I, I wish him. Yeah, I wish him nothing but well. If I ever, I've given him as anytime I can give him a gig, I'll try to give him one. But it's so far away now. But I even bought him to Cape May already. I bought him to oh, Cape nice. May once. Yeah, for one year, I bought him to Cape May. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. So now, should I go ahead and talk about um, um, Miss Mamie? Please, yes. Okay. All right. Well, Langston Hughes has a play called Simply Heavenly, and it's the only play he wrote that has music with it. The play with music, not a musical, but a play with music. Right. And in that play, and I auditioned for that play uh, back, God knows when, but my old man's band was already together by that time in Norfolk, back in Norfolk, Virginia. But it was being played, the play was being held in Newport News, Virginia. But um, so I auditioned for the play and I got the part of 
of a washerwoman uh, because uh, the play was um, situated in a rooming house because uh, Langston evidently lived in a rooming house back in the day and he wrote a lot of his stuff. Anyway, yeah. and so uh, I was a washerwoman who lived in the rooming house and there, there was a watermelon of fruit sales, you know, a trucks, you know, had a fruit truck, man, had a watermelon Joe. It was a watermelon Joe and who was always chasing after Miss Mayman. And Miss Mamie had these songs that she sang. And I always used to tell my old man, tell Ernie, kind of say stuff saying old man, <laughs> tell okay. Ernie that I could sing, yeah, gut butt, papa, sweet papa guts. Um, anyway, that I, um, he goes by sweet papa now. He just took out the guts part because uh, he's a changed <laughs> man. Anyway, he went through a, a changing, which was wonderful for him. Anyway, um, so uh, I told him before that I could sing. Cause I just felt like I could. I was into Coco Taylor, you know, Big Mama Thorne. Everybody was into that. You know, it was my dip. by that time I was into everything. Anyway, <laughs> blues was it. I was a blues fanatic. Hanging with him. Anyway, so uh, he would he would have me try to sing and I'd mess up. So he said, "Girl, going on, going on away from me." So I went away. So I went and sang in this this uh, play. And so when he came to see the play after the play, he said, "You are Miss Mamie." <laughs> so I said, I said, oh, okay, he's gonna let me sing. He said, look, you get us, let's get one set. I'll let you come out with Gut Bucket Blues Band, but one set we'll feature you in the middle set. And uh, you know, and and I so I ended up putting on made a hat, made sure I always wore a hat and always wore a dress, you know. And uh, he, and we had put our set down. I had a set list that I had just for me, and most of it was Coco Taylor songs because I'm a. If I'm gonna sing off key, let me at least sing a bell. Uh, be a belter. I can't be a balladeer. That's up. So, so, so I sing a lot of Coco stuff. Um, and uh, we wrote a couple of. You know, I wrote a song on my, my song myself, which was funny. Uh, and so that's where the original Miss Mamie came from. But then. I'm a storyteller as well. So I started telling stories. By the time I got here to Cape May, um, I started writing a, a one-woman piece, a one-woman show, uh, and I call it A Minute with Miss Mamie. Mm. And it's, it's kind of autobiographical. Uh, and I put it together and got a grant to do it. And I did it at the Fringe Festival in Philadelphia. I've done two of them now. Well, two in Philly. And I've done uh, two down here in Cape May. Um, and so I put those together, put that together, and um, it was very interesting. And I and I call it a minute with Miss Mamie. So I want to do a podcast under the auspice of Miss Mamie uh, because she is street, but she's still deep, right? You know, definitely. So definitely, she sings. Definitely. Yeah, she's she sings when she wants to sing, uh, and then she'll um, um, just espouse a lot of stories and stuff from the past. Uh, and past life, and uh, I don't know if it's polite, I don't know how polite company you are in, but I always say Miss Mamie's last name was Ryal R Y A L. Okay. It used to be R O Y A L, but she had to take out that O because she was too much of a. I won't say that out loud. <laughs> so <laughs> not you know so you know but so she became Miss Mamie Ryal. So she's still deep. She's street, but she's still deep. So I, I like telling stories and singing songs that have double entendres and telling stories that are a little, little off key, a little off, little blue, little blue, little blue, um, yeah. but uh, definitely uh, colored uh, brilliantly enough that you learn a lot from it, you know. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. let me ask you this: with all the things you've done, right, and and you being a champion for a cultural transmission, music, storytelling, art, and everything for that matter, and history. Uh, what, what, what would be the thing that you would most want at this day 
an age to to reconnect to the people, the, the, the youth, the adults, everybody. In regards to our culture, do you want to do you think we're becoming reconnected to the blues? Would you like us to be reconnected to the blues? Is there a new audience and out of the black community now, the blues people community? I I think there is. I think there is because there's some some singers that I've heard of, and you know these young young people are not necessarily listening to the, to the radio anymore. Do you, do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. most of them are getting their music streaming. And like our grandkids who are in their early 20s and the music they're listening to is not like, it's not a lot of hip hop. It's, 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 I'll call it alternative music because I've never even heard of some of these people <laughs> they listen to. But I, but the, the key thing to me in order to even get them in, involved and interested is we got to get that music out there so they can hear it. Um, if they don't hear it, they're not even going to connect to it. So that's the that's the problem. It's is really getting even if we can get it on regular radio. Uh, uh, well, I I I have uh, that streaming service on your car, uh, and on my computer and everything else. Serious right. XM, yes, yeah. I'm not supposed to say names, but anyway. And I get so disappointed when I listen to them because I have to switch it off. Uh, and I and I I'm not saying that I don't like the music, but sometimes I just want to hear us. Right. singing and playing and stuff like that. And I said, no, I don't feel like listening to them. You know, oh, yeah, I know who that is. So I click. All right. So I think if we could just do more live, do more uh, promoting uh, uh, through the cultural avenues, whether it's through arts organizations to get them. I mean, Black History Month is a time for it, of course. I, I hate doing things in Black History Month because every month is History Month, I mean, Black History right. Month can be done any month. But as long as we can get more blues out there, uh, then the more people that will listen to it will will become audience members. Now, the young people, like, I, I think maybe even having, I don't know, I just like I said, just, I don't know how to get them involved, except there are some young men and, and women who are here singing that singing music that sounds more like getting back to blues, even getting back to old R&B because um, that I don't know their names because I'm not listening to it either. Right. Um, you know, because as we got older, even my parents, as they got older, the music that, that no longer came on the radio, they just started listening to their, their LPs or we started listening to our cassettes back in the day or our CDs and now we listen to streaming. So we just now, we don't even go out as much um, right. So then the club owners aren't hiring the people, aren't hiring the music that the people that are were in love with it were able to support. Right. You know what I mean? So we're not supporting it financially by going out live. And that's where the people are going to get their, that's where the musicians are going to get their money from, the live performance. It's not from the record deals. That's you right. That's you right. Get, you're right. It's, so if we're not, if we have to, we have to keep pushing live music so that the musicians can be viable musicians and live and then people will start hearing it more. That's that's something I can think of. Um, and right now we can't go anywhere. <laughs> but but because um, I've got a, a, a big thing on my bucket list that I want to produce uh, before I go, uh, which will bring jazz, I mean, will bring blues and gospel together. Because there is a large gospel audience that I think we could probably pull in <laughs> if you can convince them that, Booze is not the devil's music, which I think we can uh-huh. nowadays. I think we can, um, unless they're truly, really tightly wound Pentecostals. 
Pentecostal, I guess that's how you say it, Pentecostal people. Yeah, um, but yeah, okay. <laughs> but uh, I have a project that I want to work on uh, that is going to bring the two musics together. That if I can pull that off before I go, I'll, I'll be a happy camper. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want anybody to steal my idea. Exactly. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, on the last note, what would you want people to receive from all the great works you've done throughout the years about you and your work? Well, I have a quote that I live by. Um, I have two. But one is, nothing is impossible to those who will and to those who love. Nothing is impossible. And I and I believe in my own, and that's a quote from Pope John the 23rd. But but I believe in that so much that there's nothing that I have ever thought of that I have let it stop me from attempting to do it. Right. Now, of course, that's within reason. I mean, I won't go out here and you know say I need five million dollars to go rob a bank or nothing because I want five million dollars. But, exactly. but you know, but I feel like where there like that old adage where there's a will, there's a way. But if right. you will it and love it. It will be okay. The other thing is for people not to give up and, and don't have blinders on. Uh, you may you may want to do something. Don't have blinders on. Let those blinders come open a little bit because there may be something else that can still get you to here. There may be something else that will get you to where you're trying to go. Um, I, I I like asking people. Uh, if, if God came down and said, you can be and do anything you want to do, regardless of how much education you have, how much money you have, or whatever, what would it be? And I've had a young lady tell me one time, she she would just shop. And mm. I said, you know what? They have something called personal shoppers. They're stylists. They're things that you can do that, that will give you that, get your Jones on that. That's and right. Still That's earn right. Your living. And still earn your living. And you may not have to go to school for it if you got an eye, you know, if you got a aesthetic appeal you know you got the aesthetics for it you might be able to do that you know so a style a person who styles rooms and there's all kinds so don't put blinders on yourselves just you know think of there's always a way to get back to that road that you're trying to get to you know where there's a you know you know don't give up you know don't give up of course within reason don't give up you know don't beat yourself up either so i mean that's there's another one i got another quote he may let me capital h he may let me do a little, but the little he lets me do, I intend to do it all. Mm. I like that one. I, I, Thank you. I like that one a lot. Well, well, Chase, I, I really appreciate you sitting down, spending some time with us, giving us some of your story and the great works you've done for the blues. And um, we got to get you back on, especially for for uh, uh, Miss uh, uh, Mammy. And I want to make sure that you get that dream project done so you can come on here and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I need your help on that one. Okay, no okay. problem. <laughs> All right. Okay.